Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 139, The Rise of Aldfrith and Kidwalla. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Sam, Jeffrey, and Adam for contributing already. This episode will roughly cover the eventful years between 685 and 689. And the main characters today will be two kings, two wannabe kings, and a bishop. And let's give you a quick rundown. First, we have King Aldfrith of Northumbria. He was the brother of the slain King Egfrith and also the son of King Oswiu, and he was ruling over Northumbria. Then we have King Hlothera of Kent. He was the brother of Egbert, who was the former king of Kent. And we'll also be talking about Adric, who was the son of King Egbert of Kent and was also the nephew of King Hlothera. So he was a claimant to the throne. But you'll also note that he wasn't a king. And then we have Caedwalla, who was the exiled son of a former king of Wessex and also a staunch pagan. And finally, we have Bishop Wilfred. Yeah, he's back. He was the former bishop of Northumbria, the same guy who got involved in Northumbrian politics and even had his own army. And then when it didn't work out, he went and complained to the Pope. And despite having the Pope on his side, he still found himself imprisoned and then exiled. And apparently, he also got into a fight to the death with some Southern English after a shipwreck. So this guy had a hell of an eventful life. And currently, he's operating in the South, and is rather grouchy with the Archbishop of Canterbury because he didn't back him up when he started throwing elbows in Northumbria. So that should give you a rough idea of who we're going to talk about today. And if I lost you, that's okay, because they'll all be listed in the show notes as well. All right, so as I hinted, we're going to have a lot of movement in a very short period of time. Seriously, it seems like almost everything happens all at once in around 685. And I've been debating on how to take you through it, and I think that the best way to do it is to go kingdom by kingdom. So, we've already covered Mercia, with King Aethelred growing in power, pushing back against Northumbrian domination, and exercising power in Wiltshire and parts of Wessex. And we've talked about Northumbria, with King Egfrith dying in battle against the Picts. And as you might imagine, that was a bit of a problem for the Northumbrians. And for the next 20 years, there would be sporadic war between the English and the Picts. But Northumbria, which was once so powerful, was now under serious threat from the Picts, the Scots, and the Strathclyde Welsh. Not to mention rival English kingdoms like Mercia. So, following the defeat at the hands of the Picts, despite the occasional fights, the English frontier was falling back to the Antonine Wall. But the death of Egfrith and the retreat from Pictland was only half of the story of what happened in 685. So let's cover the rest of the story. And then we'll talk about what was going on in Kent and Wessex, because there really was some Game of Thrones level maneuvering that was happening in the south. All right, so after King Egfrith died, his brother Aldfrith was proclaimed as king. And Aldfrith had a curious trait. He could read. Yeah, we have a literate Anglo-Saxon king. 
and that is a bit surprising until you consider his background. See, the thing is that Aldfrith was never intended to be king, and his ascension was improbable to say the least. First of all, he was the illegitimate child of Oswiu and an Irish princess named Finn. And second, Alfrith, Egfrith, and Aelfwina all stood ahead of King Aldfrith on the line of succession. And who could have predicted that King Alfrith of Deira would die, probably at his father's command, that King Aelfwina of Deira would die in battle against Mercia, and that King Egfrith of Northumbria would die fighting the Picts? And not only that, but Egfrith wouldn't leave a son or somebody to take the throne. It kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? And I doubt anyone would have predicted it, except for probably you. And that's only because you know what happens to the line of Ida. But my guess is that no one else expected this. The throne should have been thoroughly secure with an heir and a spare. And it's amazing that in 7th century Northumbria, they needed an heir, a spare, another spare, and yet one more spare. But they did. So when Aldfrith took the throne, they were practically one disaster away from having to give the crown to Unferth the Cobbler. They were in dire straits. So yeah, Aldfrith was not a man who was intended to wear the crown. And that is probably why he was groomed to enter the clergy instead. Now, as you might remember from the last few episodes, religious houses and the clergy were being stacked with royals who might otherwise get carried away with their own ambitions. So it looks like King Oswiu had sent his son off to Wessex in order to be trained by Aldhelm, the abbot of Malmesbury. And there he learned how to read. Now, Oswiu's selection of Malmesbury to educate his son wasn't too surprising given how close the sons of Aethelfrith were with the Celtic church. See, the thing is that Malmesbury was operated in the Irish tradition and was a center of Irish influence in the region. And this early education had an impact upon young Aldfrith, since despite Northumbria siding with the Catholic Church following the Synod of Whitby, Aldfrith still spent many years studying among the Irish Christians, even living among them. In fact, we have records of Aldfrith living among the Irish as late as 684, which was one year before Egfrith undertook that ill-fated adventure into Pictish lands. So Aldfrith was getting kind of close with the Celtic Church and with Ireland. And throughout his education, he developed a keen scholarly mind that was praised by luminaries such as Bede and Alcuin, who described him as a king and a teacher. And Aldhelm, his old teacher in Wessex, was so fond of the king that he dedicated the epistle of Asyrkius to him. So ultimately, what we're talking about is kind of a nerd. And consequently, his background was a bit unusual for a Northumbrian king, especially since most of his predecessors were more warlords than anything else. Generally, the gentler kings, and there really were only a few of them, didn't last too long. But King Aldfrith was a phenomenal boon to Northumbria, specifically to their scholarly culture, because this was a time when the region was truly establishing itself as the center of learning in England. And we can see evidence of this in the fact that he ordered Adomnan's work on holy places to be copied for use in Northumbria. So he wanted more ideas coming in, and it wasn't just Adomnan's stuff. He also gave the monastery at Wearmouth a sizable estate just so he could get a treatise on cosmography, which had come from Rome. 
This was a king who wanted not just to preserve knowledge, but also learn new things. Not just in literary and religious areas, but also in areas such as the shape of the night sky. He had a hunger for knowledge. See what I mean? He was a nerd. And frankly, there's a lot about Aldfrith that seems comparable to Alfred. Yeah, that Alfred, Alfred the Great. I mean, here we have an unlikely king who rose to the throne in a time of crisis, who had a scholarly mind and worked diligently to expand education within his own kingdom. It really does sound familiar, doesn't it? So the learning and scholarship of the Northumbrian monasteries in the Age of Bede were largely made possible by the work of Aldfrith. Consequently, something new was happening in Northumbria, and the changing culture linked to Aldfrith's enthusiasm for knowledge would resonate throughout the centuries. And that attention to learning was a good thing, because this was not the Northumbria of his father's time. The kingdom was under serious threat of further Pictish advances after Egfrith's death, and King Aldfrith had a lot of work to do in order to strengthen his terribly weakened kingdom. And we'll get to what he did in the episodes to come. But meanwhile, things were moving in the south as well. And while all that mess in Mercia and Northumbria was happening, things were shaking up in Kent. Do you remember King Egbert of Kent? He was the king who probably had his two cousins killed before they could assert their claim to the throne. Well, kinslaying aside, he was pretty good for Kent. During his reign, he managed to tie the southern kingdom not only to Frankish Gaul, but probably also with Lombard-dominated Italy. So Kent was pretty cosmopolitan under his direction. But despite those benefits, Kent was still a bit shaky because there were dynastic issues brewing. See, it turns out that killing your cousins won't solve all your succession issues. And also, surprisingly, it doesn't make you a ton of friends. So when Egbert died in 673, his brother, Hlothera, took power, despite the fact that Egbert had a son, a boy by the name of Adric. Yeah, once again, primogeniture was getting ignored in Kent. And the last time this happened, it ended with the deaths of a couple cousins. So you can probably guess where this is going. So let's bring it up to our current point in history, 685. And for the last 12 years, King Hlothera has been ruling over Kent. And thanks to his written laws, we have a little bit of a window into Kentish life. In fact, you probably have recognized his name because I've commented on his laws from time to time in the cultural episodes. But here's something interesting about King Hlothera. Lately, he has been including Adric, the son of the former king, in some of his documents. So why would he do that? What's going on there? Well, Kent seems to have had a history with joint kings, so it is possible that Adric was ruling as a sub-king under his uncle Hlothera. However, there aren't any definitive indications that King Hlothera actually shared royal power with his nephew. So we can't be all that sure of what happened, and it's possible that he just included Adric's name on the documents for political reasons. For example, maybe Adric was gaining support among the Thanes, and Hlothera decided to throw the boy a bone by including his name in the documents in an effort to head off a direct challenge to his authority by the young prince. It's possible. But the point is, things were getting tense in Kent. And to make matters worse... Bishop Wilfred had recently arrived in the Kingdom of the South Saxons and was meeting with King Aethelwale. 
Yeah, this is the same Wilfred who really irritated Egfrith and basically tried to challenge the king's power. And rather predictably, was tossed out of the kingdom. So, here he is down in the south. And this move was a bit troubling because he was openly hostile to the Archbishop of Canterbury. And that was a problem for Kent because the Archbishop was based in their kingdom. And yeah... Wilfred was now operating under royal assent in the kingdom that was right on the border of Kent, the kingdom of Sussex. So I'm sure everybody's really happy about that. And despite his recent knocks, Bishop Wilfred still had quite a bit of political power, not to mention ambition, so his presence there might have been a bit of a challenge to the power of Canterbury. And that probably wasn't helped by the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury was pretty sick at this point in time. So yeah, this was not looking good. You have Sussex getting friendly with the rival of Canterbury, and it seems like King Hlothera was all too aware that Adric might want to challenge his right to rule. And while King Hlothera was probably looking to head off a dynastic challenge to his power by showing some deference to Adric, in doing that, he might have unwittingly given the young prince the standing he needed to make a move. Because soon thereafter, Sussex threw their lot in with young Adric, and in 685 or 686, Adric, who was now about 15 years old, gathered his warbands and attacked his uncle. We don't have an account of how that battle went, but it looks like Adric was successful, because we're told that on February 6th of that year, King Hlothera died from the wounds that he gained in battle. And Adric, son of Egbert, was now king of Kent. And the South Saxons, who were once mighty in the early migration period, after all, the very first Bretwalda was Ayla of the South Saxons. But lately, they'd really fallen into obscurity. But now, they were beginning to once again put their mark upon the political landscape of England. And the price for their support might have been establishing the Kingdom of Kent as a mere sub-kingdom of the South Saxons. So despite the victory, Adric might have been just a sub-king of Sussex. And this move, as well as the Archbishop of Canterbury's failing health, could have been an indication not just of the strength of Sussex, but of the waning power of Kent at this time. And that fact was not missed by the men of Wessex. Now, this was not a time you would have expected too much out of the West Saxons. They had been taking a beating from the Mercians for many years, and their power structure and political organization had largely collapsed. And on top of that, they seemed to have been in continual retreat. Looking at their position in the Heptarchy, they looked like they were very close to becoming nothing more than a province of Mercia, sort of like the territory of the Middle Angles. And then, about a decade ago, in 674, King Egfrith had defeated King Wolfhera in battle, and Mercia found itself standing alone. And right on the heels of that event, King Wolfhera had died in 675. And who could have predicted that? He was only in his mid-thirties. But he was dead, and his brother, King Aethelred, took the throne. And while King Aethelred was not a man to be trifled with, after all, he defeated Egfrith in battle and killed King Aelfwina of Deira, and he ransacked the Kentish town of Rochester. The attention that he paid to the West Saxons seems to have been minimal at best. Mercia seems to have been backing off from its southern border. And then more news for the West Saxons came in 685, 
when King Egfrith of Northumbria was killed by the Picts, and King Lothera of Kent was killed by Adric and his South Saxon supporters. In just a handful of years, the three most powerful English kingdoms found themselves dealing with a tragedy and chaos that the West Saxons were all too familiar with. Things were looking better and better, at least for Wessex. They had what they've been needing for years. They had breathing room. Now, for some time, the West Saxons were ruled by King Kentwinna, who was still pagan into the mid-680s, though he did eventually convert in about 685, which is where we're at. And then he immediately entered a monastery. So, two dead kings and one king abdicating to join a monastery in a single year. 685 was a big year. And that abdication seems to have shaken things up a bit, not just for Wessex, but for the entirety of the South. The thing is that it looks like despite the growth of Christianity in Britain, some of the West Saxon aristocracy were still a bit reluctant. And while holding on to the old ways might have been due to spiritual reasons, after all, they might have wanted the support of the gods of their fathers, given all the political and military strain they were under, staying pagan might have also been a flatly political move as well. After all, their powerful neighbor to the east, the Kingdom of Kent, was the center of Christian life in Britain. So perhaps they simply didn't want to give up any ground to their potential eastern rival. And they had an even closer rival, Sussex. And Sussex was clearly a rising star, possibly dominating Kent and sitting right on the border of Wessex. And the South Saxons were still being ruled by King Aethelwale the Christian king who was very close to the Mercians, and who probably remembered that it wasn't all too long ago that his kingdom was a mere pawn in the struggles between the West Saxons and the Mercians. So despite the chaos ripping through the island, and the fact that the West Saxons had at last some relief from the Mercian attacks, it wasn't all wine and roses, and Sussex was certainly causing a great deal of concern for the West Saxons. So suddenly... We have the Mercians, the West Saxons, Kent, the South Saxons, and even the East Saxons who, due to alliances, were kind of dragged along, finding themselves in a potentially ugly political crisis. And King Kent Winna thought that this would be a fantastic time to leave the throne and enter a monastery. Great. So who is going to fill the vacuum and take the throne? Succession issues have long been a problem for Wessex. So having a clear claimant to the throne would probably be best. But apparently, they didn't have that. And that was probably pretty bad for Wessex, at least in the short term. But it was great for Cadewalla. And you might be saying, Cadewalla? Yeah, Cadewalla. He hasn't appeared in the story yet, so let's give you a quick rundown of who this guy was. He was the son of King Kenbert, the co-ruler of Wessex who died in 661 possibly due to all that mercy and expansion that was going on, though he might have also died due to internal strife. After all, both were popular causes for death for mid-7th century rulers of Wessex. Anyway, so before Kentbert died, he had a couple sons, Cadewalla and Mull. And things can get a bit dangerous for princes when the king is killed by an invading army or an internal coup. So following his father's death, Cadewalla was sent into exile while he was still a young child and he lived in the forests of Chiltern and Andred. 
and whether or not he befriended the local animals isn't detailed, but I really hope he did. Anyway, when Caedwalla was in his late teens, or early 20s, so in 681, he met Bishop Wilfred. Yeah, that Bishop Wilfred. Do you remember how Wilfred relocated to Sussex? Well, the forests of Andred were in Sussex territory. So the two men met, and it seems that they became rather close, though Caedwalla still remained staunchly pagan. But the big issue for Caedwalla was not religion. It was politics. The South Saxons, which had once been a minor kingdom in the pocket of larger kingdoms like Wessex and Mercia, were now exercising significant power in southern Britain. And given how tenuous Wessex's hold on independence was at this point, something needed to be done, or else the West Saxons might find themselves in the same place as Kent. And now they lacked a king. But Caedwalla knew that, despite spending most of his life in exile, he still had a claim to the throne. And he had a plan. But to take the kingdom, he needed standing. So right on the heels of King Kentwinna's abdication, in 685, Caedwalla gathered a war band, and he invaded the kingdom of the South Saxons. And there, he killed King Aethelwale. And think about that. We're talking about an exiled prince, a guy who has spent more time in the woods of Sussex than in his own homeland. And yet he managed to go home, gather a warband, invade Sussex, defeat veteran warbands who had just defeated Kent, and then he killed the king of Sussex. Caedwalla did not mess around. And also, that raises the tally to three dead kings and one abdicated king in 685. However, Caedwalla could not complete his conquest, and he was soon driven out by the loyal commanders of the slain king's men. And these guys were named Berthun and Anthun. And the reason why their names are important is because after that, they proceeded to govern the South Saxons. So the conquest was not complete, but as far as Caedwalla was concerned, mission accomplished. He had proven his worth. So in the following year, in 686, he became the king of the West Saxons, though exactly how he claimed the throne isn't known. But soon thereafter, we're told that Caedwalla, along with his brother Mull, invaded Kent. And I'm sure that King Adric was probably really regretting being so eager to oust his uncle Hlothera from the throne, because this was a mess. The South Saxons, who had placed him on the throne, were now largely out of commission. And now Caedwalla and Mull were coming to visit with a whole bunch of friends. And it doesn't look like the West Saxons were alone. They might have joined forces with the East Saxons during this invasion, and we think that because King Sigahera of Essex was a witness for some of the subsequent land grants. So this was a nightmare for the Kentish king. And predictably, he couldn't stop them, and they ravaged Kent. Now, it isn't clear how Edric died, whether it was in battle or later on. But Edric didn't live very long, and upon his death, King Caedwalla established his brother, Mull, as the king of Kent, and then might have made King Sigahera of Essex a sub-king of West Kent, serving under King Mull. But do you see what I mean about this short stretch of years? Everything just exploded, and everyone seems to have gotten involved. So following up on that victory, King Caedwalla once again invaded the South Saxons, looking to finish his conquest, and there he killed Berthun, 
one of those commanders who had ejected his West Saxon army the year before. So Caedwalla was now on a full rampage. And then he directed his forces at the Isle of Wight. Now the Isle of Wight had ties to Sussex and Mercia, who were two serious rivals of the West Saxons. So it seems that Wessex might have been looking to eliminate any potential challenges to their power. And they were doing so ruthlessly, because we're told that Caedwalla and his West Saxon warbands attempted to commit genocide, trying to exterminate the people of White and replace them with the West Saxons. And it does seem that King Caedwalla was at least partially successful, having killed the King of White, Arwald, as well as his two younger brothers. And curiously, he vowed to grant one-fourth of the island to the church, as well as one-fourth of the loot gained from the attack, if he was successful. And King Caedwalla did indeed give extensive lands to Bishop Wilfred, which Wilfred accepted. So, let's recap. It's about 686 or 687, and Caedwalla is now the king of the West Saxons. And the king of the South Saxons has died by his hand, as did one of his commanders, who tried to rule in his stead. The power of Sussex was broken, and now they were ruled as a subkingdom of Wessex. The king of White, his brothers, and many of his people were killed by the West Saxons. Kent was ravaged by Wessex. King Adric of Kent was now dead. And Caedwalla's brother, Mull, was now ruling as the king of Kent. A lot has changed in a year, hasn't it? And while Caedwalla might seem bloodthirsty, as far as ruthlessness goes, you really can't beat Bishop Wilfred. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's do a recap, but this time from Wilfred's perspective. Wilfred has basically been living as a religious exile, having managed to both anger King Egfrith of Northumbria and the Archbishop of Canterbury, despite briefly having the support of the Pope. So things were probably at a low point for him, and he was basically stuck in Sussex. And while he was probably moping and contemplating his failed political moves, he met a pagan exiled noble, Caedwalla. And despite his paganism, the two men appear to have become friends. Maybe they bonded over their shared sense of righteous indignance or something like that. But as luck would have it for Wilfred, Caedwalla was a power-hungry warlord who soon became the king of the West Saxons. Now, you might think that Wilfred would be concerned with the rise of a pagan warlord. But Wilfred was apparently a glass-half-full kind of guy, because he looks like he focused more upon the fact that he was getting in on the ground floor with someone who is clearly growing in power. And the religious aspect, well, that could just wait. And then King Caedwalla went on the warpath, and he attacked Christian kingdoms, and even tried to exterminate the men of white. And Wilfred doesn't appear to have lifted a finger to stop him, and even accepted some of the lands that were taken in the slaughter. And at about this point, you might be wondering about Wilfred's religious scruples, and so am I. But it keeps going, because then, when King Caedwalla goes and turns his ire upon Kent, which was the kingdom that housed the seat of Christian power in Britain, once again, Wilfred appears to have sat on his hands. And once Kent and Canterbury were fully brought low by the pagan King Cadwalla and his West Saxon army, Bishop Wilfred somehow managed to persuade the Archbishop of Canterbury to name him as the successor to the Archbishopric. Now, with all those blood-drenched warriors and their pagan king marching around Kent, 
How much free will do you think the archbishop was exercising there when he went and proclaimed Wilfred as his successor? I get the sense that Wilfred might have been saying something along the lines of, Theo? Can I call you Theo? Well, Theo, you might have noticed that things are a bit dangerous in Kent. Now, I'm friends with King Cadwalla, but I don't think I can guarantee your safety, and it really would be a shame if something happened to you before you can name a successor. And, as luck would have it, I do happen to be a bishop, so maybe we can solve this right now. Oh, and get this, the other witness to this so-called agreement for succession just happened to be the Bishop of London. And it looks like the Bishop of London was in both Wilfred and Cadewalla's pocket, even being part of the king's entourage. So yeah, this whole situation is incredibly shady. And with all that in mind, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Bishop Wilfred was scary as hell. And we're told that following that success in 686, he packed up his things and went to Northumbria. And King Aldfrith, wisely, does not appear to have tried to stop him, which was a good move because he might have found a horse head in his bed. But not everything was going well for Cadwalla and his West Saxons, because we're told that the men of Kent really were not too keen on being forced to accept Mull as their king. And so it wasn't too long before they burnt Mull and 12 other men to death. And you can guess what Cadewalla thought of that. Yeah, he wasn't too impressed. And so he marshaled his warbands and invaded once again in 687. And this time, they looked like they decided to rule Kent directly. And my guess is that given the fact they already tried to exterminate the locals in the Isle of Wight, this direct rule was probably rather brutal, with the kingdom descending into political and economic disarray. So here we are in the late 680s, and everything has changed. Wessex, which was in total retreat in the days of Wolf Hera a decade earlier, was now the preeminent power in the south, while Kent and Sussex were in retreat. Northumbria was still under threat from their Irish, Pictish, and British neighbors, and Mercia, rather than expanding, was focusing upon securing their own borders and trying to regroup. Things were looking great for Wessex. And then, in 688, their mighty king Cadwalla abdicated. And there's much debate as to why that happened. What's known is that he traveled to Rome following his abdication, and he was actually the first Anglo-Saxon king to have done that. And then he was baptized on the 10th of April, 689, which in itself is a surprising move, you know, waiting until he got to Rome to be baptized. But then, 10 days after the baptism, he died. So what happened there? Well, the prevailing theory is that he had to abdicate due to illness, and that could well explain why he wanted to wait for the baptism, wanting only the most potent form of magic from the Christian holy men. But whatever the case, this was disastrous. Wessex was incredibly close to consolidating their grip on power. Had Cadewalla ruled for just a few more years, they might have been able to challenge the power of Mercia and Northumbria. But it wasn't to be. And the abdication and death of Cadewalla created another power vacuum in the south. And actually, looking at the regnal lists, it's possible that Cadewalla's successor, King Inna, might not have even taken the throne until the following year. 
So there might have been some degree of internal struggle or strife, which was rather common for this period in West Saxon history. But things were moving. And it once again seems that anyone can seize power over the Heptarchy. This era was nothing if not violent and chaotic. And next week, we'll talk more about some of these seismic shifts in power that were rocking the Germanic East. Okay, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you to go to iTunes and review the BHP. The thing is that we're a small knit show that's trying to compete with heavyweights. And the only way that we can keep from disappearing under the flood of shows produced by big companies like the History Channel and the Discovery Channel is with your support. Apple ranks shows not just on downloads, but also based upon reviews. So when you write a review, it really helps us out a lot. And this is actually really good for the community, because the better our ranking, the more people will see the show, and that will help us grow our community, as well as hopefully enable us to get more interviews in the future. So if you can find the time to write a review and maybe upvote a few other reviews, it really would help the show out a bunch. All right, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And there's all kinds of stuff you can get involved in, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, you name it. And there are links to all of it at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>